This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Uh, Michael Tellinger, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Hello, Jeremy. Good to see you. Nice to meet you. I've looked at some of your videos and you're certainly good, doing very good work. So let me compliment you as a South African to another South African. It's really nice and refreshing to see young South Africans like you doing what you're doing. And we need more people like you. Are we in a war? Undoubtedly, we are in a war. We are in a war for survival of humanity. This is the most clandestine, uh, evil, backstabbing, unimaginable attack on all of humanity that's been planned for decades and decades and uh, it has now been implemented and I'm glad to say and recognize that people are waking up people are waking up and realizing what's going on a year ago if you told somebody uh, that this was a scam this was a plan to er eradicate humanity and you know inject us with genetically modifying organisms and uh, chemical cocktails and genetically uh, modifying mRNA um, DNA strands and so forth and 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 uh, <laughs> artificial intelligent bots uh, if you said something like this a year ago everybody would have called you a crazy idiot and and stoned you um, so in many ways I've kept out of that I've been aware of it since the first moment it hit since that first news of this virus i i went oh my god this is a this is a big one this is this is a big one and this might last a long time and i guess you know I, i'm not happy i was right but um it's what we do from now on it's how fast we wake up how fast we reach the hundred monkey syndrome how fast we reach the tipping point as malcolm gladwell called it and the the key thing here to remember is that uh T tipping point or the hundred monkey syndrome or the critical mass of awake and aware people isn't 51%. It could actually be in this kind of scenario, it could be a very small percentage, as small as like 3.3% of global population or any population within a community. So I think we're approaching that very quickly. Uh, what is happening around the world is um, more and more people get gathering every week, every weekend, protesting in larger numbers. Um, and there are definite signs that that are showing that the global elite through their puppets in the various governments around the world are panicking and um and let's let's just hope that we reach a critical ma mass very soon so we can push this thing over the edge and wh what's going to happen i don't know but um I, I can talk to you about a solution that we're working on which is the one small town solution but we'll get there yes well i first want to ask you what is that critical mass or that tipping point because we often talk about the tipping point or that critical mass and it's always coming it's always coming yeah. what is it in your in your mind well the, in in this instance because this is such an underhanded attack on our freedoms and liberties and they encroach daily you see these people are masterminds these are sociopaths and psychopaths and murderers of the highest order the most evil kind of individual that you can imagine that have come together call them the global elite whatever you want to call them the illuminati the royal political elite etc 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 they come under many names and with various titles. Uh, ultimately, when we talk about them, we're all referring to the same group of thugs and inhumane um, people. So 
because they're encroaching on our liberties and our freedoms in such an unobvious way, utilizing all their organs, all the instruments that they've taken control of from the mainstream media, which is the, the critical, because that's the, that's the face and the, the message that they send to the world that so many billions of people believe, unfortunately. Um, through the, the politicians and the government that they have infiltrated and taken control of, through the, through the police, the army, the military, the medical industry, through the education system, through every sector of our society, the, pharma, the, the pharmaceuticals, the, the agriculture, the poisonous foods that they put in, on the shelves, the, the toxins that they feed us in the water. It's just, it has been such a systematic complete attack and every day every week every month they encroach more and more on our liberties so that we don't realize what's going on the the majority of the people unless they have become wide awake a long time ago and have been watching this evolving most of the people can't see it it's like you know that story of the frog in the boiling pot mm. you know the frog sits in the water and doesn't realize the water is getting hotter and hotter and by the time the frog realizes realizes the water is too hot it doesn't have enough energy to get out of the pot. Yeah. And that's what's happening to humanity. So we've become docile. We become these obedient, uh, trusting little slaves that believe everything our authorities tell us. We forget that we elect them as our servants. These people that sit in government mm. are supposed to serve us. Never, ever, ever forget this. This should always be the number one point of departure. What are our servants doing? What are our servants doing? Are we happy with what our servants are doing? If we're not, then we need to get rid of our servants. Imagine if you came home and your housekeeper suddenly said to you, sir, you can't come into your house. And you go, excuse me? Uh, so, well, you know, I've been in the house and I've been cleaning it. And I've been looking after it. So it is now my house. I'll make the rules. Uh, you might be the uh, rightful owner. I might be the servant, but I've taken control of your house and you're now going to do what I tell you to do. That's what's happened here. We've put our servants in charge to manage the country on our behalf, and they've taken control mm. and have stolen the country from its people. People need to realize and wake up to this reality. Who are the the people um, who are by, either by emergence or by design uh, directing things? And we'll we'll get to all the other stuff in a moment, but I just want to keep on that on that train of thought. Well, it's they called the global elite, etc., and the royal political elite or the royal political banking elite. It always comes back to the money. So mm. keep in mind, it comes back to the money. It's just because money makes the world go around. Money controls the world going around. It it dictates what we can and cannot do. So it always, at this stage, in in this reality, we find ourselves in right now. It is the money and those who control the creation and the supply of money, and those are the Royal banking political elites. So we talk about the Rothschilds, the Rothschild banking empire, the Rockefellers, and all the, the 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 their buddies and friends that they've put into place to manage and control various sectors and industries that they control through the supply of money. And so it's a it's a small group, uh, and then the, then that's that's the the controlling group that really runs it from a very small nucleus. And then they have the next, you know, like onion rings, and they have the next layer mm. of, of people that they that they give certain uh, powers to, and then the next layer and so forth. So it starts with those banking elite, then it goes to the 
who knows what the layer is. Then there's the Bilderbergers. Then there's the 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 Davos, the uh, yeah. the Economic Forum group, and and so it goes. So it's these groups and groups that that they put into place. And then we have the World Health Organization. We have the world uh, uh, the the trade organization, we have uh, UNESCO, we have the United Nations, and we have all these bodies that have shoved in our faces as these are the, the groups that that are appointed yeah. to look after our interests around the world. Now, these are the groups that they've handpicked and chosen to control what we can and cannot do. And then you realize that presidents have so little say. Well, it's not true. Presidents have all the say, but it all depends whether the president is a puppet of the global elite or not. So if I was elected president, we could fix this country literally in a month. Everything is fixed within the first 24 hours. The number one thing any global leader should do if they want to remove their country from the control of the global elite, the first thing any leader should do is to close their central bank and within 24 hours reopen your central bank as a people's bank. And, you know, some people don't understand what this means because the, because they don't know how money works. They don't know who controls money. So this is critical. You know, when I ran the, the Ubuntu party and from 2010 to 2016, the slogan for the Ubuntu party was the number one slogan was we're going to we're going to close the South African Reserve Bank and replace it with a people's bank. Now, many people probably didn't understand what the hell I was talking about. So I had to make video after video to explain that our central bank does not belong to our country. It does not belong to the government, does not belong to a people. It is a private organization that belongs to the Rothschilds and all their cronies. And this is how they control all the central banks of the world. They put them in and they then control our supply of money. And people just don't know this. This is a, tr a great tragedy. It's so it's through our own ignorance that we allow these sociopaths and psychopaths to con completely to continue to control our lives and destroy our lives and destroy our countries and put their puppets into place. So all presidents of the world right now, unless they are standing up against this tyranny, yeah. and all those that have stood up against the tyranny have already been now since, since March 2020. There are five or six global presidents that have now been killed. They're the ones that were causing trouble. They're gone. Mm. So now they're replacing those with their own puppets. You know, there's a great book by Jeremy uh, Perkins, um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Yes. That's a must read for, for anyone that's new to this. How the, the global elite use their influence and their money and the CIA and all these agencies that they set up that they control to go and influence global leaders, presidents, offer them bribes. If not, they eliminate them, assassinate them, and then put their own puppet in place. So our current president, Mr. Ramaphosa, is not a, a, a servant of the people. He's a puppet of the global elite. We, however, as South Africans, have a very powerful tool at our disposal, more powerful than most countries in the world, and that is called our constitution. Because the South African constitution is very, very explicit about what the president and the government can and cannot do, far more so than most countries' constitutions. So we've got some very interesting times coming up now, even before Christmas 2021 with um, Skalk van der Marwe and his yeah. whole act, uh, action that's going on with a constitutional court case against the president and the entire government and many of the ministers, because everything they've done from the lockdowns, the shutting down of industries, the shutting down of businesses, the shutting down of our rights of to travel, to associate, to meet, to worship, to have meetings, to work, yeah. to earn a living, all of that, the masks to prevent you from breathing fresh air, to make you breathe secondhand carbon dioxide and get sick, 
All of these things are completely and utterly unconstitutional. So we get some very interesting weeks ahead. What is Ubuntu? Well, uh, for South Africans, many South Africans, if not most South Africans, will know what Ubuntu is. Ubuntu really means a community looking after each other, a community taking care of each other, looking after each other when somebody is in, in need or in, in hard times, the community looks after that person. And that's how we all should be living, living in communities where we practice the spirit of Ubuntu, looking after each other, taking care of each other and supporting each other in everything possible. Not looking at some outsider to come and save us and help us. In this case, our governments. We're all waiting for our governments to come and help us and save us. That's not that's not going to help because we know who the governments are. We know our governments and our presidents are puppets mm. of the global uh, global elite. <laughs> and then, by extension, what is one small town? I guess this is the exciting bit. Yes. So you know. This is you're asking a simple question to many of your listeners uh, and viewers. This this might be a, a big uh, a big twister. So one small town is is a is an idea that was really born in 2005 uh, when I started to realize that when I discovered that money is not what what we think it is. That money is not something that evolved over thousands of years with bartering and trading and then became this noble thing that helps us to make progress. It's exactly the opposite. Money was a tool that was introduced according to the Sumerian clay tablets and ancient texts. At this stage, I've, I've traced it back to about 6,000 years ago, but it could be even older than that. The first forms of money in the forms of clay tablets, the way we use paper money today, First forms of money were clay tablets from the Sumerian Empire, some 4,000 BC already, that we have beautiful examples of. And uh, and these clay tablets were used as promissory notes, the way we use 100 Rand bills, 100 dollar bills as promissory notes. Those clay tablets were created by those first priest kings that suddenly mysteriously appeared out of nowhere. They suddenly ruled all the land and everybody had to work for them or, 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 or uh, obey them. Otherwise, they were smited was smitten right with very advanced tools that these priest kings had it's like who are these priest kings that just appeared out of nowhere they had those all this wealth this power they built these huge temples that were impenetrable they had these weapons that they could smite anyone and any so nobody could oppose them therefore people obeyed them and they did what they were told otherwise no, nobody would listen to them and these are the origins of our royal bloodlines they go back thousands and thousands of years and from those royal bloodlines comes the creation of money. These first priest kings created this, these first forms of money in their temples. So temples and banks are synonymous. It's the same thing um, where you worship these priest kings and you worship their money. And, uh, and the clay tablets are just its spectacular. When you look at them, they are identical to the money we use today, identical to promissory notes. You know, I promise to pay the bearer on, on demand and all this crap. So, so... Uh, the one small town really was was an idea that was born out of the realization that money was introduced as a complete ideology and a tool of enslavement to humanity. That money is not something that evolved out of thousands, over thousands of years to to help us coexist and and achieve stuff. It's exactly the opposite. It's the hurdle to progress. It's the obstacle to, for people to, to achieve anything. And those who control the supply and the creation of money control everything if they have the army to support it obviously so 
with that, they need the army to support them. So from this, uh, I realized that we need to change the way the world works, the way we, we interact. And I looked at how societies lived in the past and how even even in the times of, of you know, the great, uh, what might be seen as, as invasions of other countries, but even when the fur trackers, for example, arrived here and they, would, they, they moved from Cape Town to up north, they, they did... They looked after themselves. They took care of what they were doing. The pioneers in every new frontier that people arrived in, whether it's groups, whether it's the Zulus, whether it's the Kozas, whether it's the fur trackers, it all depends which time period you look at. People looked after their communities, looked after their people and ensured that their people were taken care of. And if we had to build a bridge, we don't ask for the bank to give us money. We accumulate the people that know how to build a bridge. We get the stones and the wood and we build the bridge. And then we have a bridge. At no time will we give that bridge, hand that bridge over to somebody else to say, here's the bridge now um, uh, so that they can charge us to use the bridge that we built. Mm. So you can see how how insane the capitalist model is. So, so the Ubuntu movement was born out of this realization that capitalism is built on, first of all, lying to the people, confusing the people, telling the people that we need money, otherwise we can't survive. And, and taking out the Ubuntu philosophy from our communities where we work together as a united front for the greatest benefit of everyone in our communities. And then that, that turned into the Ubuntu party, which we realized does not work. You cannot bring this change through politics. Why? Because the political arena is completely and utterly controlled by the same global elite that control our presidents and our prime ministers. So you can't separate the elections from the governments. The two are inextricably connected. So these global elite sociopaths that that choose who they're going to put into power of every in charge of every country control the outcome of that election. Look what they did to the USA. Look what happened in the last election in the USA. Uh, I, you know, having been in South African elections for three elections, I know how absolutely controlled the outcome is. You know, if I tell people, they won't believe me. They'll they'll think I'm making it up. But I was there. I know how many votes we got. I know that the Ubuntu party had more than a million signed up members. We ended up with five and a half thousand votes. That is simply not possible. Wow. So I can talk in great detail about the political arena and how that is controlled. So, and this is, so this is, you know, I've walked the talk. We've 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 done all this since 2004, 2005, and having this experience, going through all these different areas, taking on the banks in the South African courts, the High Court and the the Supreme Court and the Constitutional Court, taking on the banks for crimes against humanity and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, that's all given me the foundational knowledge to know how things work, who controls them, and most important things, what not to do. And that's that's what I always tell everybody. We have an idea of what we should be doing. We know what we want. We know what we should be doing to get there. But at least we now have a long list of things what not to do because we know these things don't work. And the number one thing that doesn't work is the current socioeconomic structure and the socioeconomic system we have in the world today, whether it's capitalism or communism or socialism or any other ism. It does not work. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this discussion. There'd be no need for us to have this discussion. We'd be all living in bliss, having beautiful lives, and wondering what we're going to do tomorrow with all this amazing time that we have. <laughs> but then this journey led to the one small town concept, which is yes. what? So the one small town concept was born after the twenty. 14 elections when we realized that you can't beat them in their own game, political game, by injecting a seed of consciousness into the political beast. You know, those, that was our slogan at that time. And we thought we could do it and realized, no, you're, barking, <laughs> you're delusional if you believe that. And that's when I realized, so if we can't do it like that, how are we going to do this? How are we going to bring prosperity and abundance to the people of South Africa and then to the rest of the world? Uh, if we can't do it through the political arena, we can't mm. go and riot and protest. That doesn't work. Um, and then it suddenly hit me. Where does the power lie? The power lies with the people. So let's go where the people are. Where can we reach the people and get a message across to the people, a clear and a coherent and a simple message that everybody will understand to explain to people how easily we can take back the power, bring the power back to the people and start building a new foundation from scratch, not fighting the current system, because you can't beat the current system. They control every aspect of the current system. So you can't fight them. So what we need to do is use the current system, what we call using the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation, and using that so we can benefit our communities, and through that benefit, create a new alternative system that makes the current system obsolete. And that's what the one small town really does. It's a towns. You can reach the people very quickly, very effectively. Small towns, everybody knows everybody. It's easy to spread a message. You can call a town meeting. And if it's a town of 10,000 people and 500 people come to the meeting, you've already spoken to 5% of the people. Mm -hmm. So you've already reached a critical mass of people in that community. So to spread a message in a small town, and to get people thinking about a new idea, how they will bring prosperity and abundance to their town is much easier than to do it in a, in a city of 5 million or 10 million people. So it's, and that's, yeah. it's a celebration then of a community's sovereignty. Yes. It's not just a celebration. It's the recognition that the communities have the power, have the capacity to take back their sovereignty, to take back the power and start to do something that will benefit the entire community, not just the people with money or the big, you know, the politicians and whatever, to do something that'll, if, that'll benefit every member of our community, that'll mm. bring prosperity and abundance to every member of our community so that no one will ever, ever be hungry again. No one will ever be without a job or anything to do. No one will ever wonder how their children are going to get educated all of this gets taken care of in the one small town model. And it's such a simple plan that it's now it's, you know, it's gone, it's gone viral. It's gone global. And that's one of my biggest problems right now is to manage the, the rapid growth and the rapid explosion of the one small town idea. It's based on electricity. Is that right? Uh, yes and no. Um, for a long time, um, for a long time, I was using the electricity as a carrot to say that we will, what we'll do in the one small town is we'll bring in our own supply of electricity. Now, if people are confused by this, we have access to technology that, that you know a lot of people aren't aware of. We have access to 
very advanced new electricity technology. You can call it free energy, free electricity if you want to. That's pretty much what it is. We have access to to healthcare and healing technologies that can cure all disease. And when I say all disease, I mean all disease. I mean, even including allowing quadriplegics to walk. We're talking about such advanced medical technology. It's right here. We have access to it. But our governments and the pharmaceutical companies will never, ever, and the ESCOMs, those that control electricity, will never, ever go that route because that means they will go belly up very, very quickly. But in a once more town situation, you can control it. You can manage it. The community can decide to bring this in and implement this themselves for their own benefit. So they benefit from it. So the, the one small town, let me give you the 60, 60 second elevator pitch, right? This is what one small town really is. We take small towns and we identify the industrial opportunities, uh, the, the people, talents and people skills. We identify the agricultural opportunities and we identify what businesses are lying idle, what farms are lying idle, what warehouses and factories are standing empty that were once thriving businesses. We write new business plans for all those businesses. We identify as many businesses as we can, starting with agriculture, growing as much food and as much diverse food as we can. Uh, um, um, manufacturing all the down the line value chain products from growing corn and and wheat and whatever else and vegetables so that we have all the different foods that we also manufacture identifying technology what can we can we build supercomputers can we set up a pharmaceutical company setting up a pharmaceutical company growing as many medic African medicinal plants as we can and whatever country you're in med local medicinal plants that grow in your area and then we, we create those business plans. And then we turn our town into a, a united front, a co-op of a united labor force. Every one of our members contributes three hours a week towards one of our businesses and one of our community projects that we have identified we want to launch in our town. Now, if we have 100 business plans and we have 10,000 people in the town and everybody contributes three hours a week, that gives us 30,000 hours of free labor a week. Just let that sink in. 30,000 hours of free labor every week. This means that our little town of 10,000 people is capable of turning over as much money and as much revenue as a multinational corporation of about 5,000 people. And those kind of corporations normally turn over about $1 billion or more per annum. Now, this takes a little while to sink in when you hear it for the first time and you realize how powerful the simple idea of one small town truly is. Every little town in the world, from 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people, maybe up to 100,000 people, each one of those towns has the capacity to become a united cooperative labor force that owns all the businesses in that town, in that community, whether it's the growing of the millies, the, the, the wheat, the bakery, the dairy, the engineering, the technology, the hospital, the community-owned hospital. I'll talk to you about that. That's one of the key cornerstones of every one small town. Re completely re-overhauling the, the medical aid, the hospitalization industry. And every small town can become not only self-sustained. I don't like the word sustained because we don't want to hang on to survival. We don't want to sustain ourselves. We want to create prosperity and abundance on an unimaginable scale. And every small community has the capacity to do that 
do it very quickly and very effortlessly if they just unite and create this very simple structure. Now, I mean, it's obviously a fairly new idea to some degree. Are there any real-world examples of where the development is currently happening? Well, it's not a new idea. Um, it's actually been around for many years. We've just been refining right. it and, and tuning it and fixing it, having little trials here and there and learning what not to do and learning what we should avoid. So right now we have uh, the One Small Town movement has ambassadors in 16 countries um, or 15 countries. We have 17 ambassadors in 15 countries. More ambassadors are, are emailing me every day, people that want to become an ambassador in their country. We have support in more than 140 countries. We have at this stage signed letters of engagement for One Small Town in um, four countries. And uh, it's just growing all the time. So we're in the process of putting all the pieces together to launch the very first small town. So we're no longer talking about it. We're now doing it. The next step, and it's going to happen, it's going to seem to most people that it happened overnight because it's going to come out of thin air. You know, people that aren't aware of the one small town will suddenly see it for the first time. When we launch the first one small town, it's going to become such a huge global awareness uh, news item through the especially the social networks yeah social media networks that it's going to take people by surprise suddenly to see wow here's a little town in lebanon of 10,000 people they've just launched 50 businesses the annual revenue turnover is five billion dollars from those businesses and this has all happened in of literally a short space of time in a small town in lebanon and then they're going sure. to see, oh, my God, South Africa is about to launch one small town. We're about to launch a small town up in the, in the, in the I'm not going to mention names at this stage, uh, in the northwest province. We have many other towns that are now contacting me on a weekly basis. It's just the method. Because, because we're putting the first one into place, it's a hell of a lot of work. What we're doing now, we, we're writing all the business plans. So maybe if people are still confused because I may not have finished my train of thought there. The business plans are necessary for the launch of the One Small Town, so we have something to offer as a united community. We have something to offer to outside investors. So we turn our town into a very friendly investment environment or investor environment. We turn our town into a destination, a highly attractive investment opportunity because of our cooperative labor force, because of the very low labor costs, because 70, 50 to 80% of any business's labor costs are going to be zero. So you can imagine mm. in large companies where they have 5,000 employees, suddenly those 5,000 employees can be reduced to 20 employees and they produce the same kind of outcome. Just, just think about how that changes the, the revenue and the profits. And that's in essence what we're doing. We're turning our town into a united labor force, making ourselves as attractive as we can to outside investors, into the businesses that we mm. have crafted, that we own. We own two-thirds of all the businesses, and we offer all our investors one-third of our businesses. So what have we done? We've, we've created investors with an incredibly safe investment opportunity because they are partnering with an entire community Yeah. so that if we start a bakery, there can be no other bakery that can ever come and undermine us or compete with us. It's just not simply not possible. And that goes for any other business or sector. And 
the the community, uh, like I said, is now can be seen as a company because it is a company mm. in essence. It's a co-op. We create a co-op called One Small Town Co-op, whatever the name of the town is. And anyone in our town that joins the co-op pledges their three hours a week, and those three hours a week make them instantly a member of that co-op. Right. What I need to add, we're busy building an app. Look, there's so much happening behind the scenes. And for people that are new to this, they're going to go, wow, this is, you know, this is too too good to be true and all that. Well, put all your nonsensical uh, fears, cognitive dissonance fears aside. Just put all that crap aside. Realize it's happening. We're doing it. So it's just a matter of time before the first small town is launched. The only thing it's taking longer than we expected is the, the writing of the business plans. It's, uh, it's, we didn't expect that to take so long because we need every business plan to be really meticulous and watertight. So when the investors come onto our website, when we launch this one small town and they look at the investment opportunities, they can look at the lovely PowerPoint presentation. They can drill into the financials and go, wow, this is really detailed stuff. You mean for 5 million uh, rand, I can, I can set up a, a, a dairy that can produce cheeses and creams and butter and supply a, a, a supply a, 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 a pool of a possibly a, a million people with a potential turnover of 100 million rand a year for 5 million rand i'm in where can i sign up i want to invest into that business now i know that we're going to get investors because of our little experiment in canada in 2017 we launched our first little small town in a, in a town called North Frontenac with Mayor Ron Higgins in December 20 or November 2017. It was a huge success. It was such a great social media network uh, success, sensation that Mayor Ron Higgins didn't know what to do with all the emails of congratulations and well done and we love you. You're like He became mm-hmm. the most popular mayor in the world overnight of a little small town of 4,500 people. And then we started to learn what not to do. And it's all those things that we learned from 2017 that we're now putting into practice. So it's, it's a very go- exciting time. I was going to say a moment ago that um, I've heard you use the term contributionism. Yes. So contributionism was the, the name that I gave the system. You know, when I started writing this idea in 20, uh, 2005, rather, and I started to go and be invited in Joe. I lived in Joburg in those days. I'm a Joburg boy most of my life. Lived in Cape Town for six years of my life. Love Cape Town. Uh, and uh, But I, I couldn't stand the wind and the cold water. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, when, in 2005, um, after, shortly after I moved back from Cape Town, I, you know, I started to write about this. I released my book, Slave Species of God. And that became a, a global sort of, it's become a bit of a cult book around the world. It just, it got to the top 20 of, on Amazon books, uh, literally in the first two weeks of being released. So it became quite a spoken about book around the world. And that then led me on the path of this, creating this new idea. How do we go from this capitalist, destructive, dividing system? Because capitalism divides people. It destroys it d- destroys people's lives. It d- destroys families. It destroys businesses. It destroys friends. It destroys countries. <laughs> it is the most toxic tool of division and destruction that anyone could have come up with. Capitalism. So if anybody still tells you that money makes the world go round, no. People make the world go round. Money is the obstacle that gets in our way every step of the way. 
that prevents us from doing things and achieving things. So, um, I suppose, so contributionism, sorry, sorry just on. to finish, the co contributionism was the name that I came up with. I was trying to think, well, if we all work together towards the greatest good of, of the people in the community, if we, if we, what is it going to be called? If we all contribute towards the benefit of everybody. So that's where the word contributionism came from. Contribute. We contribute. And it is a very different ism. Because mm. this is, you know, in the early days I came under attack. Oh, it's just another ism. No, you haven't read the details. Go back and do your homework before you become an armchair critic, uh, unworthy mm. of your time. Right? So, so, so contributionism is unlike any other ism because what contributionism will do eventually not immediately but eventually it will remove money from the system completely but now, again this might be a shock it, to people yeah first i mean isn't it a bit karl marxian not at all uh, in fact uh i went and i specifically when i was writing these philosophies and, and uh, these are not philosophies they were practical applications like I woke up and I think, well, if there was no money, and I would really like, and I always, I have for 16 years now, in all my lectures around the world, in my workshops, and you know, there've been hundreds of them in, in more than 30 countries. So I always tell people, do what I did. Try and do this mental exercise yourself. So you try and reach a conclusion, and you will reach the same conclusion that I reached, because I went through this, I did it the hard way. Because mm. nobody was telling me what to think and what to do. And I specifically did not want to read any philosophy or ideology about communism, Marx, Engels, all those disgusting, horrible people that gave us so much, you know, so much bloodshed and warfare and conflict. I didn't want to read any of that because I wanted to come up with something that was completely pure, completely clean, uninfluenced by any of those ideologies. So what I can tell you is that Whatever communism or Marx or Engels and all those people had to say, none of that will ever be possible in a contributionist community because contributionism will remove money from the system. It removes central control. It removes any possibility of totalitarian control, which is completely what it, the problem that we have today. Our governments have become totalitarian dictators that tell us what we can and cannot do. We all currently we live all live under a brutal communist system. We can't run our businesses. Our businesses are being shut down. We can't travel. We need papers and permits to do everything and anything. We can't even breathe, breathe clean air. What has happened? And people don't realize that that's what's happened. We've been plunged. The whole world has been plunged into a, a communist dictatorship without us even realizing and, and going, hold on, I don't want to be part of this. So one small town will undo that literally overnight because people take control. Mm. They take control of their healthcare, of their security, of their technology. And when we start talking about the technology, things change very, very quickly. And I'm guessing it's not really scalable. Well, it is scalable to a certain to a certain size, at which point that community might decide, listen, we're getting too big. Let's let's take that part of our town and turn it into a separate community. Otherwise, it just becomes another metropolitan area. But the other thing about uh, One Small Town and the contributionism philosophy is that it actually, it's an antidote for overpopulation. It is an immediate 
you know, the population will start to drop around the world because um, over overpopulation is an is an aspect of capitalism and and c c financial control and poverty, creating poverty through capitalism and financial control and political control. So uh, that's what happens. So one small town will solve all those problems. Uh, I always say one of my, I guess, most commonly used statements is that the one small town has woven into it a solution for every problem we face as the human race. Any imaginable problem that you can think of, if you put it into the one small town situation, you will find a solution. Not because I'm clever or I came up with a solution, because the, the one small town structure has a solution for that problem. If you just apply how one small town community is structured and how we make decisions. So no one can run away with anything. No one can become a dictator. Nobody can steal the money in the bank. It's just, it's simply not possible. You said steal the money in the bank. Uh, tell me a little bit about the banking structure. So remember a few minutes ago, I said we use the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation. Mm. And that's really important because for many years, I was talking about creating communities without money and so forth. So a lot of people are still watch, watch those videos from 10 years ago and think that that's what we're doing. No, we're not doing that. Ultimately, like I mentioned a little while ago, contributionism and the one small town model will ultimately result in our community no longer needing money. But we can't start off with that concept because people just go crazy. People can't imagine it. So you have to slowly but surely take people by the hand and lead them into the water. So by using the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation, we slowly but surely lay the foundation in which we no longer need money. And it's going to be a slow step-by-step -step encroachment. The way the global elite are encroaching on our liberties now, we're going to encroach on eroding the need for their money. But to start off with, we need their money. We can't use cryptocurrencies. We can't create our own currencies. The moment you do that, you become a target. You can be jeopardized. You can be sabotaged. You can be undermined. Mm. We have to use their tools of enslavement because they can't suddenly say, so we're no longer going to use the dollar because that will collapse their entire system. So we use their money, whether it's the dollars, pounds, rands, yen, whatever. We use their money to make ourselves as wealthy as we possibly can. Now, you and I know, and anyone else listening to this, you, you know, just imagine, if you live in a small town of 10 or 20,000 people, and our town turns over 10 billion rand a year, of which 5 billion of that is profit, or even 2 billion of that is profit, you know how powerful that little town is going to be. Because we'll have so much freaking money, we can choose to do anything we want. And with money comes power and control. Well, I'm not saying we're going to use that in a negative way. I'm going to say we're going to use that in a positive way to assert our liberties, to assert our freedoms, because now we'll have money to use the lawyers, to use their courts, to, to, to take them on at their own game where and if we need to. Right now, people can't take anyone to court. You and I can't take the government to court. We don't have money because everything costs money. So when they say, well, you, you know, Justice is, uh, you know, you can, the courts are there for everybody to use. No, you can't use the legal system unless you have an infinite amount of money. Ask me, I know, I did this for four years in the Supreme Court of Johannesburg and in the Constitutional Court in Johannesburg, taking the banks to the courts 
It cost me everything I had, and I was representing myself. I didn't use lawyers, so yeah, it's a very it's a very simple plan, but a very very powerful plan. Oh well, look, I'm a fan of simplicity. Uh, generally speaking, I think uh, I think it's 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 one of those things in life where when we try and create highly complex algorithms for everything, it just makes everything uh, worse. To you know, in the long run, um, I wanted to ask you. Is freedom an illusion? Because you were talking about liberty earlier. No, freedom is not an illusion. At this stage, it certainly seems like it's an illusion. At this stage, most of our freedoms and liberties have been removed. We have very little freedom. We have the illusion of freedom. We have a, a set of choices and options that are presented to us. Well, you can go there, but you need a permit. Or you can have a business, but you have to do X, Y, and Z. So there's every step that we take, every facet of our lives that we want to move into has some measure of control that we didn't put in there. Our governments put it in. Our servants put in the rules and restrictions that restrict our freedoms and liberties. Imagine, you're, you come home from from a long weekend and your servant has taken over your home and says, no, sorry, you can't come into the lounge. You can only, you can only have access to your bedroom. I now control the lounge. Excuse me. <laughs> That's not how it works. So uh, the, the liberty and freedom is a, is a very difficult concept to grasp when, when you don't have it. And we need to remember what it is to have liberty and freedom where in, in essence, very few of us actually know what true freedom and true liberty means. The moment you have to use a passport to travel to another country, you know you're not free. The moment you have to show an ID document to prove that you're X, Y, and Z, you know you're not free. The moment you have an ID number means that you are the possession of somebody. If you have a certificate attached to your to your name at birth, that means you're the possession or the property of somebody. Vaccine so passports. Freedom, exactly. So freedom is a is a big word. Sovereignty is very closely associated with that. And and the way that we grow up, actually very few people truly realize what true freedom is. We we think we are free because I can jump in my car and drive to Durban and hang out on the beach. Oh, I've got, look, I can do what I want. Well, if you think that's freedom, then you're very confused. How did you arrive at this point in your life? Uh, it's more of a meta question, but I mean, what are some of those markers throughout your, your journey? Um, I think, um, f first of all, I think you're born like this. It's not something that, that you become. I think you, you're born like this. I was always an inquisitive mind from a very early young child. Uh, I was not rebellious, but I was always questioning what I was told by my teachers. You know, I remember like even you know going to piano classes at the age of five, having to learn boring Bartok and terrible boring piano things. I said, no, I don't want. I want to play that. I want to play that. You know, so so, so always um, questioning what you're taught and wondering if there's something else behind it. Uh, and then, uh, I guess in in uh, when I was nineteen, I read Eric von Däniken's Chariots of the Gods, and that was a big breakthrough, a huge breakthrough moment for me. I was first first year at university, fresh out of school. You know, I was a musician. I was, you know, a rebellious musician. 
studying pharmaceutics, adverts, um, and, uh, and, you know, learning the process of medical school. And it's only when I left medical school and I started to go into the pharmaceutical industry and learning all the BS and, and like, what is going on here? Uh, realizing that pretty much everything I was taught at university is just a program to make me a good um, student and a good disciple of their textbooks, the big pharma companies' textbooks and the medical industry authorities' textbooks and how to do this, how to prescribe that and how to ma manufacture this and how to make that. There's no innovation, nothing, no, no teaching of how do I find a better cure for cancer or how do I find, is there potentially a better cure for asthma? Or there's none of that. It's just you become a, a disciple for the textbooks of the medical industry. Anyone that comes, comes out of medical school is, goes through the same indoctrination. So it took me many years after that to realize that I need to learn, relearn everything I was taught at school and at university. Yeah. So is that, is that what you would, align with uh, knowledge and wisdom, the the relearning process? You know, one of the other moments, actually, I just remember now, it's difficult to just throw that question and, and suddenly re rem remember all those moments. I just remember in Standard 7, I was 14, in biology class. And at one stage, a teacher said, and, and all these cells in your body keep regenerating and we keep growing new cells all the time. And I went, well... Do you understand what that means? It means that we should never die. And that just suddenly I went, if we can create new cells all the time, why do we die? And very few biology teachers and medical experts can still answer that question today. And the answer to that is very, very simple. Because our DNA has been programmed and manipulated. <laughs> so. um, on your website... Uh, you you have the statement something along the lines of um, everything is a lie and I must admit I find that quite fascinating and I think most people listening now uh, might not have said that two years ago but are certainly saying it now why do you think that is well it's a, it's again it's a very simple question with a very complex answer well it's a very simple answer but for those that are not awake and aware yet for people that are not not realizing what's going on in the world. The answers are horrifying, are shocking, are unbelievable, are so far-fetched that most people that hear the answers simply will not believe it. Their cognitive dissonance kicks in at a fierce level and they just defend the prison walls of their own prison and they become the wardens and the bodyguards of their own prison because they simply cannot, do not want to accept the alternative possibility that what they have been taught and what they've been led to believe since childhood. And that is what I call the terrible truth. So to face the terrible truth, you have to have a truly open mind. Now, open mind means an open mind. You can't have an open mind and then at one stage say, I have an open mind, but then you don't have an open mind. The moment the word but enters that discussion, our conversation has pretty much come to an end because anything I say after that, you will no longer take in, you'll not, you'll not listen to, your cognitive dissonance will constantly negate it as I speak, as I try and explain to you what's going on. So I forget what your question was now because uh, I'm <laughs> rambling. Uh, no, I was kind of alluding to 
to, to the oh, idea no. that perhaps history yes. is not what we're taught? Not just history. So let me come back to everything we've been taught is a lie. Now, I actually do this in my, in my lectures. Uh, I start with that, my most recent lectures and, and workshops. I start with that, and we start with everything from history, science, physics, quantum mechanics, space, water, medicine, agriculture, um, everything, geography, everything, every subject we find at school, there is a very high percentage component of that which is false, which is fake, which is not true. But the only way that you can sustain a lie is to keep the golden thread of truth in there somewhere. But you fudge the details. You fudge the details so much that people lose that golden thread of truth. And then they get caught up in the soap opera that surrounds the truth and all the lies and deceptions. And that's that's the way our education system is unquestionably the system that was created to promote the lie, to propagate the lie through the the increased layer of disinformation, propaganda, brainwashing. It is spectacular what's going on. You know, I use science and, and physics as a, as a great example of, of, of a lie. Everything we are taught in science and physics is a complete and utter lie because it's based on some fundamentally flawed principles, like the standard model in physics, that everything comes out of, uh, and, and the, the standard model of physics and the, the notion of how our universe came to exist. The fact that everything come, came out of this Big Bang moment in tiny little particles, and these particles, where they come from is you know a big question, well, you know, where they come from. And then, then they tell us they came out of this thing called a singularity. And then the singularity was already there. So you can't create or destroy energy. We can change it from one form to another. So they keep lying one lie after another to patch up the next lie. So by the time you start peeling away the layers of lies and deceptions, you just, it's a, it's a horrific discovery. But you reach a stage, once you come to terms with the fact that everything we've been told is a lie, it becomes a very exciting journey of discovery. When it's no longer horrifying and terrifying, when you realize that there's a beautiful truth out there, a beautiful truth of unity consciousness, a beautiful beautiful truth of creation of the highest spectacular divine order that is that is behind all this incredible creation we find ourselves in, and that all of this can be ex explained very simply if you follow the right logic and protocols, and even when you go into our mainstream education, you can extract those golden threads of truth from that education system and realize how they've lied around it, right? And this is our, what I find so exciting. And that's what I teach in my lectures and my workshops. And I must say, it's, it's a very liberating thing for people to go through it. Um, in, in physics, for example, the entire atomic model structure is based on an absolute fabrication and a theory and BS, and yet they've, they've created the formulas and the, the mathematical formulas and the physics formulas to support the lies and the so-called observations that are based on flawed fundamental principles. So it is such a complex bullshit story that boggles the mind. And I find it so exciting to just break it apart and... Um, let me let me go to the atomic model, for example. So our entire atomic model comes from 18, 1887, 1897, you know, from from um, 
First of all, J.J. Thompson that finds the discovers a theoretical particle, the electron, a theoretical particle called the electron. Never found it, never discovered it, but they said it must be there, and he wins a Nobel Prize for that. And you go, how can you win a Nobel Prize for something that you haven't proven that doesn't exist? It's an idea, and you win a Nobel Prize for it? And you see, ah, there's the beginning of the agenda. There we have a beautiful, unbelievable example in billboards. Nobel Prize agenda begins. Right. Ten years later, Rutherford comes along with these very basic childlike grade one absolute BS model to try and prove the structure of the atom. And they bombard a, a, a thin foil with gold with some so-called particles and uh, and the particles get get get. Um, uh, sorry, I've got a, a, a nasty little uh, a wasp that's uh, hovering around me. <laughs> and this and these particles bounce some of them go through some of them are deflected some of them bounce and some of them bounce right back so the conclusion the conclusion is that there must be a solid nucleus in the atom and that conclusion sticks and this is still the model they teach today it is unimaginable unbelievable that that childlike naive unscientific conclusion is still taught today and the entire scientific and physics and chemistry model is based on that atomic model where most researchers and scientists that have gone beyond that realize that that is not the structure of atoms or electrons or any subatomic particle or any molecule for that matter or any uh, any any sound resonance or frequency or any magnetic field the basic structure of everything is a beautiful balanced toroidal field so the toroidal fields that we find in perfect magnetic models are exactly the same structure that electrons or subatomic particles and mm. atoms are also the same structure. And at the center of the atom is what is called the infinite density of the nuke of the, the infinite density of the zero point of the atom or the toroidal field. This is well accepted across many spheres of science and physics. And yet they don't introduce that back into the atomic model to say, listen, our atomic model is completely wrong. It's BS. The reason why those particles bounce back, because it's been shown that the density of that zero point at the center of the toroidal field is infinite. It's an in infinite density out of which everything manifests into physical form, the seen and the unseen. So, so I'm a ranting a little bit, but no, I just fine. want to explain to you. And, and then let me finish mm. the sentence by saying, when you go and study physics and you go to university and they ask you, what is the force that holds the nucleus of the atom together? And you don't answer the strong force, which is a bullshit statement, by the way. It is completely made up theoretical, as unscientific as you can possibly get. If you do not answer, it's the strong force that holds the nucleus together. You will fail. You will never get a science degree. Can you understand how? absolutely despicable our education systems mm. so, so i was i was about to ask so in in the one small town or or shall we say in the many small towns um the education syllabus what what happens there does the community determine yes. uh, the syllabus yes absolutely and you should know how many incredible teachers we have Mm. We have such incredible teachers in the world that are so good at what they do from working with children of the earliest of ages. We have so many incredible 
teaching educational models that are so so much superior to the current education system we have so absolutely the education system in the one small town will be completely overhauled by choice not because we can't afford the the we don't want the current education system we want our children to be wise we want them to to have wisdom when they reach the age of 16 we want them to have experience knowledge practical knowledge and practical experience of as much as they possibly can not theoretical crap that's shoved into their brains and then they have to write an exam and if you don't regurgitate the crap then you don't pass the entire structure of our education system is so despicable it is just it is as inhumane as anybody could possibly imagine education system has got nothing to do with teaching our with children education. or giving them knowledge. <laughs> it's all to do. Remember who's created the current education system? It's the bankers. Mm. It's the mm. it's the Carnegies. It's the I forget the, the banking names, the uh the, the Rocker the Rockefellers are part of it in any case. And um and uh, it's it's really an indoctrination system to create an obedient, unquestioning labor force. You said earlier that uh people who live in a one small town town um, would give of their own time about three hours per week. That's assuming that everybody wants to do that. What happens if you say, I don't know, 35% of the town is just lazy and doesn't want to do that? What happens then? This is one of the frequently asked questions. So what I'd like to do is any one of your viewers has any questions. If you're new to this, you will have questions. And I can tell you, I know exactly what those questions are. You've asked one of the frequently asked questions. Please go into the onto the onesmalltown.org website, click onto FAQ, frequently asked questions, or Q&A, and there are about 30 videos that answer many of these questions. It's like clockwork. You know, in my lectures, if you watch any of my online lectures, there, there are dozens on YouTube that are free. Please watch the, the many One Small Town videos or go to the website and they're all in one place. And uh, I, I sort of identify the 20 or 30 most frequently asked questions. And it's so it's it's what that showed me is that uh, we're all equally poisoned because we keep asking the same questions or think about millions of people in the world. I must have done these lectures to, you know, well over two million people around the world, whether it's on video or that it's live to large audiences and small audiences and in workshops. The questions that come back from the audience is always the same. So it just tells very clearly shows us that we are all equally poisoned by our current socioeconomic system and the education system that underpins that. So if what if people don't want to contribute their three hours a week? Well, once you realize what one small town is, it's a co-op. You choose to join the co-op. When you choose to join the co-op, you sign up. You're a member of that co-op. You have certain obligations. You have to contribute three hours a week. The app that we're developing, the app will sign you up. You're automatically a member. You, you, you sign the terms and conditions. By that, you are then eligible to receive all the dividends, the cash dividends every month, the food dividends, the technology dividends, all the services, everything. Remember that every business that we have in that town from that moment on that we launch will belong to that co-op, which means it belongs to its members. And every one of those members, by simply contributing three hours a week, gets all those benefits, free electricity, everything, hospitalization, medical aid, all those things for free by contributing three hours a week. So 
what will happen is some people that might not want to join the co-op. And as this thing grows, the people in the co-op start working three hours a week where the app tells them to go. Our businesses will flourish and, and grow and, and start making millions and millions every month. And we start distributing cash and distributing food and distributing laptops and nail clippers and, you know, vacuum cleaners and bicycles and everything, anything else that we manufacture. But food and electricity remain and the other services remain some of the most important ones, obviously, and hospitalization and, and roof your, your house. If your house mm. is broken, then the guys that fix houses in your community will come fix your house for free. Because you're contributing your three hours a week. So every aspect of our society, of our community that is part of the co-op gets taken care of. We take care of ourselves. So the people that sit on the fence and don't sign up for three hours a week, they just carry on. They carry on paying for electricity. They mm. carry on paying for everything else. And they live their life as they did normally. Nothing changes. But those that find three hours a week will suddenly see all the benefits. In front of you, there is a crystal ball. What do you see? I see. Um, I see. First of all, the global global population waking up, reaching a critical mass, and uh, putting an end to this uh, totalitarian onslaught on all our rights and liberties. I see very shortly in the next few months the first small town being launched. It could be in Lebanon, it could be in South Africa, it could be in Namibia, could be in Croatia, could be in the USA, could be in Australia, could be in several of the countries that we are working with at the moment. Uh, the moment that first one small town launches is going to create an unimaginable, unprecedented domino effect of something that we've never experienced in the world. When people realize that this crazy idea that Tellinger has been talking about for 16 years is not just a pipe dream. This has happened. It's real. And it's happening now. We are building it. We're doing it. We're no longer talking about it. So it is about to be launched. We just need to finish the business plans. And the moment we're ready with that, we are ready to launch. To write business plans is just it's just taking us longer than we expected. So it'll happen. And uh, then we're going to see the one small town thing just go. It's going to go ballistic. And now, let me tell you why again. Mm. Because what we've learned, we've learned from what happened in North Frontenac in Canada. We've, we've, we saw the global rise of support of people all over the world that suddenly stood and supported Mayor Ron Higgins. They loved him. They worshipped him for what he was doing. In Lebanon and in South Africa and the new countries now, we have a completely different plan of implementation. It's way, way different from what mm. we did there, what we learned from our mistakes. When we launched this, uh, so when we first launched, uh, when our first mayor in Lebanon signed our letter of engagement, within that first week, another two mayors signed letters of engagement with us in Lebanon. Within the following two weeks, another 28 mayors wanted to sign letters of engagement with us. Can you see that, that exponential growth of acceptance? So, Many people over the years have been telling me, oh, well, you got to prove your, you got to proof of acceptance. No, we, we got to, no proof. You got to, you got to prove that the model works. And I've been saying, no, we got to prove that the model is accepted. Now the model has been accepted. And once one mayor accepts it, suddenly all the other mayors go, wow, well, if he thinks it's cool, so it could work for me too. 
Now, we're about to sign our very first mayor in the USA. When that happens, if we had 30 mayors in Lebanon wanting to sign up, you can imagine what's going to happen in the USA. It's going to be a whole different kettle of fish. So I'm holding on, uh, <laughs> to, waiting to manage this, this little crisis. It's a good crisis, good problem to have, but it comes with its own problems that I have to face, and that's funding for our office. We just... You know, we need funding. We need more funds to manage the office, to manage the, the ever-increasing uh, pull on, on our resources uh, from IT being one of the most important ones, mm. managing the IT and the websites and the social media. What are you going to do, though, um, if you personally can't travel to those regions because you know that the, the mandates are going to kick in fairly soon? And I'm guessing that you're not oh, going yeah. to be injected. We manifest that... Um, but that's not going to happen. We manifest that our constitution in South Africa uh, will prevent them from stopping us. Um, and uh, we'll have to take it uh, a day at a time and a week at a time. So I, I see a, a, a world and, and our country, South Africa, where we will not have those restrictions because we as the people will overcome that and we will neutralize it and, and, and get rid of it. It'll disappear. Um, and hopefully it will come along with some Nuremberg-style trials against those that actually try to impose it on us and did impose it on us and forced people to be vaccinated who actually actually caused harm to people knowingly so there's some serious repercussions that i hope will come from this and I've got a, trials are yeah. absolutely necessary i've got a bone to pick with you though i i deliberately said yes. the word injected not vaccinated yes, yes injected so when you injected whatever you injected with, you know what they injected, what they're trying to inject us with. Yes. So where can people? I'll call it. I'll call it vaccines. That's fine. You know, I'm not an anti-vaccine. I understand how vaccines work. The 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 normal basic vaccines are miracles. They're incredible. But what they what they've created now, these are not vaccines. These are these are biological weapons mm. of unimaginable evil and proportion. Okay, I was about to ask you, where can people find out more about what you uh, involved easiest, with? Yeah, e easiest, michaeltillinger.com. That's my main website. And then onesmalltown.org. That's the Ubuntu Planet and One Small Town website. And, um, and then go watch all the videos um, and, uh, and spread the word. Because if we don't do something about this, we're screwed as, as a species. You know, we can't sit on the fence and wait for somebody to come and save us. We have to start saving ourselves. And this is a very simple thing that everybody can do, is to spread the One Small Town message so that people know there is a simple, workable solution that mm. is being implemented right now. We have a solution. Tell everybody. Michael Tenninger, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Jeremy, good to talk to you, my friend. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.